Breaking India, in my view, is one of the most important books of 21st century. And the role it has played in awakening people to the dangers at hand, the dangers that are staring at, at us in the face, but people didn't know. You helped not only connect the dots, but also cleared the fog. And a whole generation of not just youngsters, but even my generation, have drawn inspiration from the work you did, you put into this. I mean, all your books are path-breaking. They break new ground. So each one of them has played a role. But to my mind, the political role that it has played as an activist, A, the title itself was very catchy and very appropriate. Um, and the content you put in, um, garnered over years, really helped clear the fog and help people understand what they were facing. Why is it that things seem to go wrong? We tend to blame our political leaders. Oh, we elected this government and we voted for that government. But the forces that are actually tying the hands and uh, minds of our uh, elected representatives, as well as the bureaucracy and all agencies of the state, you helped nail them with precision. And I think really that um, even if you did nothing else but had done this book, your life would be very well lived, would be counted as very well spent. But of course, there is such a vast volume of literature you produce, no less important, but this, I, I, I still think has played a very crucial role. And it then opened up people's minds to your other, uh, other scholarship. Now, it's interesting that the forces that you describe, you know, I've grown up among them because I'm one of those few who started taking an active interest in social political issues from my teenage. So most of the activism that started came later is actually in a way post Madhukeshwar. I have seen all these people get activized. Many of them actually got activized thanks to their connect with Manushi, but very soon were trapped and sucked in by the foreign donor agencies that you've described, the activities that you've described so well. Now, as someone who from day one, I have no idea which Devi Shakti made me mistrustful of foreign donor agencies at a time when information about them was not really much known. I'm talking about the year 89, when we founded Manushi. Uh, no, 88, 88, when we founded Manushi. At that time, not much was known, but I have no idea, not, and they were not, they had not proliferated as widely in India as they are today. Um, but one of the first decisions I took was we shall not accept foreign funding, no donor agencies. And actually I even said no government funding because I know what governments do when they tie uh, you to their apron strings. And I think that was the wisest, wisest decisions I took, even though there was not much knowledge on the base of which I took that decision. For me, it was just a matter of 
uh, simple atmasamma, self-esteem, that if we are to take on the problems of India, make this a country that we can be proud of, this is a task we must do on our own steam, on our own strength. We must dip into our own pockets. We must give selflessly um, as, as a debt of gratitude to our motherland, rather than do it as a profession, just as you've done. I was also inspired by similar uh, motives that we must do it um, in the spirit of giving as a debt of gratitude to our motherland and to our ancestors who actually against the most unimaginably harsh circumstances, they stayed firm and steadfast in their dharma. You and I wouldn't be um, Hindus today, but for the sacrifices that our ancestors made in order not to convert. The seduction that they resisted and the punishments they must have borne with quiet dignity in order not to convert. Otherwise, um, this dialogue would not have been possible. So that debt of gratitude we needed to pay, that was my idea. And that's not something I wanted to do at the behest of any foreign donor agencies. Now, it's interesting, Rajiv. Uh, I'm one of the few, I don't know anybody else who said no to foreign donor agencies so steadfastly, so consistently, and with such clarity um, at a very young age. And to start with, it's not as if I, I was attacking them. I just wanted to just keep my self-esteem intact. But I became a persona non grata very soon because I said no to the likes of Ford Foundation. They take it as an insult. They take it as an affront that you want to give the message that you can be a socially active and a politically active citizen taking on issues without their help. Uh, and, and not carry a begging bowl in order to say, oh, our society is so bad, our men are such horrible patriarchs, they're brutes, and we need your help, we need your protection in order to fix things in our society. That's the message they wanted all activists to carry. And the fact that I simply said no to that, I think I paid from the very start, very, very, uh, heavy price for it. The defamation campaigns. And interestingly, Rajit, those who unleash these are mostly commies, huh? CPM activists. They were in the forefront. Maoists, even in those days, the CPML activists, uh, you would imagine that they wouldn't want to touch US imperialist uh, money and they wouldn't want to be their puppets. But no they all gravitated and this this alliance that i saw at a very early age between foreign western donor agencies and our communist uh, uh, mafia as i would call them today um, woke me to the fact that there's something amiss that something very sinister was happening otherwise these two have no reason to be together but they are and your book also proves what a deep alliance they faced. At that time, the Islamic forces were still muted. We, they were not so aggressive as they've turned out today. Now, as it so happened, because I started political activism very early on in, as a teenager, uh, 
many and many of these India breakers that you have documented, and many of them you've named, were well known to me as Manushi subscribers. Many of them also at one time were friends or colleagues. I had grown up among them. But because I opposed foreign funded NGOs and their fake agendas and the flaky issues they took up, the interesting thing is though in this book, you haven't done with it, but the issues that I immediately got into confrontation with them about was around social legislation, laws affecting families, laws, social reform laws. And I began critiquing them from very early on, each one of them, as they were being introduced at the behest of these NGOs, the manner in which the government of India, for example, became hostage to their agendas and was willing to pass any number of laws without application of mind, without going through the merits of the case, without actually getting sound legal brains to even look at those laws. They, they passed through the parliament without even a debate simply because it was politically fashionable to talk of empowerment of women, women empowerment of Dalits, empowerment of this and that. And we passed such noxious laws under their influence. And I was taking them on on that front. Their agendas, the laws that they were trying to push down our throat. And honestly, at that time, there was no support. Most people thought I was, I was a crackpot, A, for saying no to the lacs and crores I could get instead of being hand to mouth. And you know, in those days, as a salary, my salary as a lecturer was a few hundred rupees. It, it, it wasn't even in thousands. And yet it's from our own pockets that we started Manushi. The initial capital was just 800 rupees from our own pockets and they, without an office, without a table, without a typewriter. I don't know how we survived those years. And yet saying no to the lakhs that they were willing to offer us every year. Uh, everybody thought I was a crackpot and many tried to even persuade me that I was being cussed. But their agendas became clear and I'm so grateful that I went through those trials and tribulations, Rajiv. St stayed steadfast. I was willing to shut down Manushi but was not willing to uh, run it with their money. But it was a very, very lonely journey till I met you, Rajiv. In terms of uh, finding a, a, a companion, an intellectual comrade, a political comrade, somebody you were grappling at that time too when we first met. And uh, we were both finding our way. I too was trying to figure out the world I was living in. I'd started Manushi with, you know, starry-eyed uh, idealism, uh, thinking that all those who came, um, or set up NGOs or social organizations were inspired by noble motives till I found it was all a matter of uh, selling yourself to the highest bidder. That's really what this activism was all about. It was about jet setting. It was about negotiating jobs in foreign universities, invitations to conferences, lecture tours. That's about all that they aimed at and didn't matter um, what they were asked to do, which issues they were asked to support, 
Uh, in fact, it's at that time that I began to say that uh, all these friends of mine, these activists, um, if someone offered to pay them $500 a day or even $100 a day for spitting on their parents' faces morning, evening, and night, they'll happily do it and think that that's the smartest thing to do. Because the kind of things they were doing, they were spitting on their own um, culture, they were spitting on their own country, they were spitting on the civilizational heritage of this land, and they were spitting on their own people, treating them with the same imperious disdain that colonial masters used to do, <coughs> or Christian missionaries, the disdain they brought for <coughs> Hindu civilization and faith <coughs> with them in an attempt to subjugate us morally, spiritually, financially, economically, emotionally. They were playing the same game and <coughs> using the same vocabulary. That self-hating variety of Hindu really made me so sick. And that's really what connected you and I. And we then tried working together, remember the two conferences that you financed while I was a professor at the CSDS, um, Religions and Cultures in the Indic Civilization. My, my colleagues were stunned that with such a small amount of money, uh, we had a small corpus for those. Uh, I remember it was $20,000 for a conference. And yet we had 450 people from all over the world come at their own cost to read papers. They said, 450 how did Rajiv and you manage something like that? Not only that, they said, so that again gave me an insight into how much ayashi there was into even conferencing uh, with globally. And we, we did it, I think, reasonably well. But I think that, that was a trial balloon. Uh, I wasn't so clear how this narrative was to be shaped. And at that time, I remember we, I tried to say, let's bring the left and the right together for a dialogue. But over years, over the years, we found out they don't want dialogue. They only want um, to, to persecute you, to defame you um, in absentia. They will not come. I think that was the only time the left and the non-left came together. Never before nor after. But I, I'm not sure uh, what it triggered. But the point that I would like to emphasize is the use of the word Indic. I think that was the first time uh, it was put in academic circulation. And now, of course, it's become very commonplace. And now both of us have moved from Indic to saying Hindu. Uh, we are Dharmic uh, civilization, Sanatan Dharma. Uh, even Indic as a broad category uh, because it includes things that I'm not sure both of us are ready to embrace today. Now, what I find most inspiring about you and your work and this book and the exposés that you have done of all these three forces you talk about, I don't think people understood it as well as you documented how mutually hostile forces globally, namely 
Christian missionaries, Islamic uh, jihadis, and Maoists or communists. All these three don't really have much in common, but when it comes to India, they are together as a gang. They are together to, as a gang to say, let's first deal with the Hindus, decimate them, break up India into pieces, then we'll divide it among ourselves. That game plan is very clear. And that's where China with its Maoist brigade uh, and uh, uh, promotion of insurgency in the Northeast and then in the name of socialist councils and this, that, and the other, as well as US uh, missionaries, uh, Baptist missionaries, and a whole lot of other conversion mafias let loose by the West. Um, they come together very easily, no conflict. And they all then join together to rise in defense of a force that is elsewhere in the world, actually under sharp attack, namely Islamic Jihad. Here, we are not even allowed to say we need to protect ourselves from terrorist attacks because religion, uh, terror, terror has no religion. So we are not allowed to even connect the dots and say almost all terrorism in India and perhaps even globally is coming from Islamists. Um, even to say that makes you Islamophobic, makes you a Hindu fascist, no less. So uh, I think the manner in which in, in the last chapter, you bring all these three forces together and you show the commonality of purpose that they have um, was really prescient, was very, very prescient. Many may have sensed it. And at that time, since Islam was not as aggressive, the Muslims were still getting away with the narrative that they are a hapless minority and they are always uh, persecuted by Hindus through riots, they are marginalized, but that, that, that was far from the case. The other thing very notable about your book is that the mask of piety that Christian missionaries wear, you unmask them very effectively. I find that while people are still willing to accept that Islam poses a threat. But Christian missionaries, they're so good, they provide education to the poor, they set up schools where government doesn't have schools, they educate the poor, they set up hospitals, they do social work, they find jobs for these people, there's that, you know, that narrative is so strong. And for it to be so strong in a country where so much of insurgency in the Northeast, in the Red Corridor in Central India is actually church-based. Well, church is the launching pad. Church provides the launching pads for terrorists. If our army and security forces and the police and the administration is not allowed to even name these places, leave alone, search them, leave alone, take action against them when, we, when they nurture these forces, these secessionist forces, where are we? I mean, they've defanged the Indian state. They've actually rendered it napunsak through this phony secularism, which hangs like a millstone round our neck. Now, I personally find it very, very inspirational. You know, these people, this entire breakup India mafia, 
I was instinctively against them and I abandoned many friendships um, and chalked the lonely path. I would not attend their meetings which has to feel I I'll suffocate and choke and puke. Uh, I stopped attending their conferences. I, I had to stop reading that literature because it used to so um, annoy me. And I would deal with them only through my writing. But you, Rajiv, the amazing thing about you is you would walk right into their battlefield and you will challenge them in their battleground month after month, year after year, and you would engage with them even when they even when they pretended they didn't notice you, even when they pretended they never read anything you wrote because they, they, they would have to otherwise answer. To me, that was um, real courage, the intellectual kshatriya that you want, uh, kshatriyahood that you want the Indian youth to adopt. Well, you showed it, you demonstrated it almost every day of your life. Till now, you are, of course, you know, um, um, a fully matured uh, guru now of how to not just be an intellectual kshatriya but to prepare generations of them um, uh, with with nurture and care. Now, the the other important contribution I would say that you made actually in this book, the manner in which you um, describe in detail while naming the actual uh, players that are subverting India uh, is not to shy away from taking names, not to shy away by identifying them, their organizations and the persons concerned. Mostly people don't have that kind of courage. My only request to you, Rajiv, is that in your next book, Please, in your footnotes, the footnote should be on the same page because it's too, uh, not only that it's difficult to go, keep going back and forth and go to the end pages where the footnotes are given, but very often you don't give the details of the case. You'll say the wife of so-and-so did so-and-so, and then you give a reference Indian Express or some other uh, you know, publication where the full information is. But that information, we'll have to go to the newspaper to get the full. Please provide it on the same page, even though in brief. And the footnote on the same page, even though, and if possible, the link, you know, because people should get the details of, uh, of uh, the, the, the details of each case uh, ready at hand. To me, that's a big, uh, that would be a big favor. Now, this book should have been, in my view, compulsory reading for the Indian Administrative Service trainings. It should be compulsory reading for police uh, training um, institutes. It should be compulsory reading even for the army because if they don't know the enemy, I find it very depressing that in their training, so many senior police officers, so many army generals have told me that all these facts were unknown. When I wrote about the UPSC Jihad, so many senior IS officers, so many senior uh, bureaucrats, army men, policemen, 
retired director generals of police told me, but we weren't ever given this information in our training or in later meetings or even in strategy meetings. Now your book should have been compulsory reading for them to know how serious it is for them to know all this. But while the people of India, concerned citizens of India have embraced your book, have actually, I don't know why you sound such a pessimistic note because your expectations are much higher than are being, than the current generation is able to fulfill. But I personally feel that you have no reason to feel uh, distressed about it because the awakening is real. The groundswell is real. The bottom is waking up, rising up. The leaders at the top are still not ready to face. This is the first time perhaps in Indian history that most of our leaders who people had trusted are today being dragged by the nose to, uh, by the people to say, please take note. You read the social media and you see how much battering the governments are getting when they do wrong. By Hindus, uh, even those leaders who identify themselves as Hindu Hridaya Samrats are getting a good battering if they fail on crucial issues. And I think you played a very important role in that awakening. And the phrases that you have coined, whether it's breaking India or intellectual shatyas and many others, are today common parlance. You see how often they are used on social media and even in academic writing now. So honestly, the government may be tardy, lethargic, but then from nowhere, we have somebody like Yogi Adityanath uh, rise on the horizon, on whom people are pegging much more hope because he promises to be of a different genre. Uh, Hemant Biswashan Sharma comes from the Congress fold, but look at the kind of clear-sighted politics he's pursuing and the manner in which he's articulating without uh, hesitation Hindu interests and uh, safeguarding uh, Hindu Rashtra, Hindu, uh, not Hindu Rashtra, it isn't. I hope one day we will be able to move in that direction. Um, the Rashtra that you talked about, not the nation state that is India, but Rashtra that is rooted in Hindu values. But they've begun to talk in that language. Uh, in, the, in Chennai, in Tamil Nadu, the present uh, president, I think, of BJP uh, for Tamil Nadu, is speaking that language and people are pinning a lot of hopes on it. And there are many such leaders emerging from nowhere. So I really think you don't have any reason to be so pessimistic. Lot of people draw inspiration from you. Lot of people have learned from you and therefore uh, are following in your footsteps. Yes, we're not well organized, but you know that organizational setting up an organizational platform where people work as a cohesive force. Even you didn't have time to do that because you wanted to get your books. You wanted to get the message out. You didn't have time to create that kind of a platform that's needed 
the kind that you are now urging other people to set up because the work you had to do was so important. And I'm very certain, Rajiv, that in the years and decades to come, you will see the blossoming of dozens of such platforms and countless more determined leaders which will follow the path that you would like our political leaders to take in the decades to come. If we are to survive as a rashtra, as a civilization, as a culture, as people, um, that has to happen or else, of course, there is doom and despair, but then nobody else has the answer. And I'm sure you agree that increasingly many people, even in the West, are looking to India to provide answers even to their personal existential dilemmas. So, Hamari Gyan Parampara ko jo aapne ek Philip diya hai, wo Gyan Parampara ab dabne wali shayad nahi hai. और वो ज्ञान परंपरा ऐसे ही लोग आगे बढ़ाएंगे जिनका अपना कोई स्वार्थ नहीं है जो इस यज्ञ में अपनी उनके पास आहुति देने के लिए कुछ है और जो पब्लिक लाइफ में सिर्फ लेने आते लूटने खसूटने आते उनकी तरफ देखना भी मुझे लगता है व्यर्थ है आने वाले वर्षों में दशकों में बहुत से राजी मल्होत्रा इस देश में पैदा होंगे और मुझे लगता है कि आपका जो काम है यू स्कैटर्ड द सीड सो वाइड यू विल सी अ वेरी रिच हार्वेस्ट इन द इयर्स टू कम थैंक यू एंड थैंक यू फॉर बीइंग माय फ्रेंड एंड एन इंस्पिरेशनल वन एट दैट